Hey there, goblins. I have a last-minute plug for one of my favorite things in life. Coffee. One of my friends is the founder of Folk Hero Coffee Company, and he is giving all of my listeners a 10% discount on their purchase. Folk Hero Coffee has blends with West Virginia themes such as Mother Jones, Sid Hatfield, John Brown, and everyone's favorite cryptid, the Mothman. You can get your choice of ground or whole bean coffee at folkherocoffee.com. To get your discount, use the coupon code ESOTERIC22 at checkout. This code will be good until the end of the year, so place your orders soon. Once again, the website is folkherocoffee.com and the code is ESOTERIC22. As they say at Folk Hero Coffee, sometimes all it takes to be your best is a little bit of the good stuff. And when it's too early for that, there's coffee. Hi, I'm Jimmy Coe. And I'm Stephen Hawk. And we're the host of the Cosmic Sponge Podcast, where we explore the unknown from UFOs and cryptids to unexplained disappearances and ancient mysteries. If you're looking for strange stories that will keep you on the edge of your seat, jump on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or search for Cosmic Sponge on your favorite listening platform. Head on over to our website at www.cosmicsponge.com to get access to all of our content, including a full list of platforms where you can enjoy the show. The world stands at a precipice where the urge to hold on to power without service provides one with the empty comfort of a rewarding of the ego. Those rewards are sugary little sweets that have no substance and no meaning. They are empty, devoid of nourishment. Only when we take responsibility for all the damage that we have done and seek to redress the balance will we ever survive. Even though we claim assurances from modern science, still we are afraid. So very afraid of everything. We think we are not afraid of nature, that we have controlled it. But we are still monkeys, running around scared for the most part, reacting to our world instead of acting with intention. We react to protect our egos, our sense of self, but only when we realize that there is not separate self, that we are all related, will the fear leave us. That is the essence of Druidry. It is connection, being part of an ecosystem, weaving threads of inspiration, and finding our place in the world, in the here and now, in harmony, and with respect. My name is Jason, and you're listening to the Esoteric Book Club. Welcome back, Goblins! I'm your host, Jason, and tonight we will be taking a look at the work The Book of Hedge Druidry, A Complete Guide for the Solitary Seeker by Joanna Vanderhoeven. 
But first, a few announcements. The Esoteric Book Club now has a merchandise page. You can get t-shirts with the podcast logos along with a few select pieces of my own artwork, including She-Squatch, The Flatwoods Monster, and a Batman-inspired Mothman emblem. These designs are available through TeePublic, which means you have a wide array of options for cut, fabric, and style. Find them at tpublic.com slash user slash ebcpod, or just follow the link in the show notes below. Oh, and sign up for their email newsletter too. I don't really get anything out of it, but they will send you discount codes periodically, so it's totally worth signing up for. Next up, I want to take a moment to thank the members of the Esoteric Archive, specifically Annie Kay, Soul Rising Studios, and Grand Inquisitor Samantha. If you too would like to hear your name at the start of every single episode, sign up for the Esoteric Archive at patreon.com forward slash esoteric book club. All members get early access to episodes. Those pledging $3 or more get extended episodes, and those pledging $8 or more get a shout-out on every single show. Your donations help with server costs, reading materials, and keeps me supplied with peppermint mochas, which helps stave off the crippling migraines caused by barometric pressure shifts in seasonal weather patterns. Is it just me, or has the sun been exceptionally loud recently? Once again, that's patreon.com forward slash esoteric book club. Now that that's out of the way, let's get weird. Joanna Vanderhoeven is a druid, witch, author, and teacher. She has written multiple books, including The Awen Alone, The Path of the Hedge Witch, Zen for Druids, and The Stillness Within. She has also written for numerous pagan magazines, websites, and has been a guest speaker at conferences, fairs, and festivals. Joanna is the co-founder of the Druid College UK, which was established in 2015 and offers three-year-long Druidry training programs. She was born in Quebec but now resides in the village of Suffolk in the UK with her husband. She is currently the director of the Druid College UK and runs her own dance company. The books The Awen Alone and Where the Hawthorne Grows by Morgan Daimler are what got me into Druidry in the first place. I was looking for something that better aligned with my beliefs, but I wasn't really finding it. Taoism came close with its animistic views. Shamanism had potential, but ultimately came across as being very whitewashed. And witchcraft, well, I'm just really not the witchy type. All three of these came close, but they really didn't have everything that I was looking for. Thanks to Dungeons and Dragons, my initial view of Druidry was that it was mostly comprised of crunchy, tree-hugging hippies. Which isn't wrong, but it isn't the full picture either. What I found was that there were about as many variations on Druidry as there were denominations in Christianity. They range from super strict, regionally specific pagan worship, 
to what is affectionately known as beer and pretzel druidry. Care to take a guess where I fall in on that spectrum? Eventually, I found other authors such as John Michael Greer, Dr. Ronald Hutton, and John Beckett, who all added to my studies in one way or another. While I have not joined an existing Druid order, I still follow the foundations of the practice. That's probably why the Book of Hedge Druidry appealed to me so much. Hedge Druids, and Hedge Witches, are usually solitary practitioners who either don't have access to large groups or chose to forego the trappings of a larger organization. For me, it was a little of column A and a little of column B. The problem with doing this on your own is that you don't exactly get a lot of guidance. Mostly, you spend your time reading and constructing your own framework. But you don't have to. Because that's exactly what this book seeks to provide. The Book of Hedge Druidry is 329 pages long and is broken into four parts. Theory, Practice, Study, and Skills and Techniques. For this review, I want to focus on the sections for Theories and Practice, and for the Archive members, I'll go into the Skills and Techniques section. So let's rewind a bit and start all the way back at the beginning. Okay, that might be a problem. Because we really don't know when Druidry began. We have a lot of theories, but no first-hand written evidence. So what do we have? Joanna speculates that Druidry is the evolved form of indigenous spirituality in the British Isles. During the Ice Age, when sea levels were drastically lower, the British Isles were connected to the mainland. This strip of land is known as Doggerland. At this time, it was easier for people from the areas known today as England and France to interact with each other. Communication and beliefs traveled much more freely. As the sea levels rose and divided the land, Communication became less frequent until eventually the British Isles were completely cut off from the mainland. Sure, trade still happened, but not as freely as when you could just walk to your destination. So while spiritual practices may have developed along similar parallel paths, Druidry did diverge slightly between Ireland, the UK, and the mainland. At least, that's one theory. The other theory is that Druidry began in the east and migrated westward, eventually coming to the British Isles. Personally, I feel like it's probably a little bit of both. I have a feeling that the basis for their beliefs was already established regionally during the Ice Age, and at some point a group known as the Druids created a universal framework and training system that codified those beliefs. But we don't know for sure. There is very little about them in recorded history. In fact, most of what we do know about the Druids comes from the Romans. So let's take a brief aside to look at what is said about them. 
In Book 6 of the Gallic Wars by Julius Caesar, there is a description of the Druid. It reads as follows. Of those two orders, Caesar's talking about the two orders of authority in Gaul, one is that of the Druids, the other that of the Knights. The former are engaged in things sacred, conduct public and private sacrifices, and interpret all matters of religion. Many young men seek instruction from this group, and because of this, they are held in great honor. Druids dispense judgment in almost all disputes, public and private. If any crime has been committed, murder, inheritance disputes, or disagreement over property boundaries, then these people decide it. They decree both rewards and punishment. Anyone, either in a private or public capacity, who does not abide by their decision, is banned from the sacrifices. In this case, we can read sacrifices as public rituals. Yes, sacrifices were made at this time, but there was much more to the events. This is the harshest punishment among their people. Those subjected to this punishment are considered the most impious and the most criminal. Everyone shuns them, avoiding their company and conversation, lest they too receive some guilt by association. They are declared outlaws, and no rights are bestowed upon them. So people who are punished in this manner are both shunned and declared outlaws. This is probably one of the harshest punishments in the ancient world, considering that you are basically no longer considered a person. You are denied the blessing of the gods, ignored by the people, and exempt from the law. But before anyone says it, yes, that means that you can commit crimes. But, because the law doesn't consider you a person, it also means that people can harm or kill you for any transgression. Remember this part for later. Caesar continues, There is one druid who presides over all others, one who possesses supreme authority among them. Upon his death, if one stands out among the rest in honor and dignity, he succeeds him. But if there are many who are equal, it is voted upon by the rest. Sometimes this is settled by a trial by combat. The Druids assemble at a specific time of year in a consecrated place in the territories of the Carnutes, which is reckoned the central region of all of Gaul. Here, everyone gathers to hear their rulings on disputes, their decrees, and their judgments. This institution is reported to have been devised in Britain and then brought in to Gaul. Now, those who seek to study that system generally go there, to Great Britain, to learn it. Now, anyone familiar with the Viking Age or heathenry in general would recognize this practice as the all thing. It's basically the same thing, except the person dispensing judgment is the law speaker, 
A person whose sole job is to memorize the law and dispense judgment. It's kind of like having a single Supreme Court judge for each region of the state. Personally, I feel like the role of the law speaker was a secular transition from the original Druid caste. But let's continue with Caesar. The Druids do not go to war. Furthermore, they are exempt from taxes and conscription. Because of this, many people seek out this profession or are enrolled in the training by their parents. It is said that they memorize a great number of verses. According to some accounts, it is said that they remain in their studies for 21 years. It is also prohibited to write down anything pertaining to these lessons. Druids are not prohibited from writing in general, though, and, when they do, they use Greek letters. Now, these accounts are a single snapshot in time. As Rome continued to expand, the Druids did in fact involve themselves in war. This usually came in the form of cursing enemy armies or in more of an advisory position. You may have heard previously that the Druids were not allowed to write things down, which, as we've heard, is only partially true. They were allowed to write, they just weren't allowed to write down anything pertaining to Druidry. There is one last part I want to take a look at before we move away from Caesar. This is probably the most controversial passage about Druids and is often read out of context. So, here we go. All of Gaul is obsessed with superstition. Because of this, people afflicted by disease or those preparing for battle or other dangerous activities will sacrifice humans or vow to make said sacrifice, utilizing druids to perform these rites. It is believed that the life of a man must be sacrificed in order to preserve the life of another man. Otherwise, the gods will ignore your plea. Sacrifices of this type are also arranged for matters of national importance. In these cases, a giant figure is constructed with hollow limbs. These hollow limbs are filled with people convicted of theft, robbery, or other offenses, and the figure is burned. It is believed that the gods prefer the sacrifice of criminals, but, when they are lacking, the sacrifice of innocence are acceptable. Okay, so the idea of the burning of a wicker man full of people has been around since this was written, but it is often seen outside the context of that culture. Before anyone gets too excited, I am not advocating for this practice. I am simply saying that it makes sense if you look at it holistically from the view of a person from Gaul. Let me explain a bit more. As we saw earlier, Druids could declare people outlaws and then shun them. These criminals are no longer protected by the law since they themselves willfully ignored said laws. They are also cursed by the gods as declared by the Druids during their conviction. So while they are still considered men, 
they are no longer given divine or secular protection. They are outsiders, no longer part of the community. They are no longer a Gaul. Laws and protection are for the defense and prosperity of your friends, family, and community. If you're not part of that group, you're against it. So while they are still performing ritual human sacrifice, they are sacrificing those who are seeking to destroy Gallic social cohesion. Unfortunately, when you are in this mindset and human sacrifice is necessary to protect the life of your people, you sometimes need to resort to the sacrifice of the innocent. This became evident when the full might of the Roman army was thrust upon the Gallic people. There's simply not enough criminals to sacrifice to prevent the onslaught of multiple legions. What can we learn from this, though? We see that Druids were highly educated leaders of the community, but were not chieftains or kings. They were judges, priests, and arbiters. They didn't directly engage in war, but they were still involved with it. They couldn't be conscripted, but they weren't above fighting. They didn't write down their teachings, but they also didn't shun writing in itself. They valued law, community, knowledge, and the gods. It is popularly believed that Caesar exaggerated his stories as a means of propaganda for the Roman people. While this is true to an extent, his accounts of Gaul seem pretty accurate. He may have just overemphasized the use of human sacrifice. After all, he was seeing Gaul at its worst and most desperate. Besides, Rome was publicly executing people by feeding them to starving lions. Are the two really that different given the context? Not really. But historically, people seem to place more emphasis on one than the other. Let's get back to the book before I get too sidetracked here. So all of that took place before the current era. For the most part, Druids were either exterminated or driven underground by the Romans, and eventually by the Christians. Some Judic entities became canonized, such as the goddess Brigid becoming Saint Brigid. But most of the time, the church came in and built a structure over top of an existing sacred site. While this stifled most of the pre-existing traditions, the construction of monasteries did help to preserve existing oral tradition. This is how we still know about Brehan Law and a large chunk of early medieval mythology. Without monastic scribes, a lot of this would have been lost forever. Then we jump about a thousand years all the way to the 17th and 18th centuries, where we see the Druid revival, where people attempted to reconstruct a nature-based religion. I'm using the term reconstruct very loosely here. For the most part, these individuals were making things up as they went, while vaguely structuring it on early archaeology. What I find interesting about this time period is that we see the varied structure of Druidry becoming a hallmark of the practice. 
Some Druid groups were religious-based. Some were social groups. Some were secret societies. And some were community organizations that were like a combination of a labor union and private insurance company. Granted, secret societies were super trendy at this time, so it's no surprise that Druidry found its way in here as well. As with most trends, the popularity of secret societies died down, and along with them, Druidry. At least, until the 1940s and 50s. When we think of modern Druidry, we think of traditions that were largely constructed by Ross Nichols and Gerald Gardner, who is most famous for creating the modern practice of Wicca. Nichols and Gardner were members of a group known as the Ancient Druid Order, a group founded around the turn of the 20th century. The Ancient Druid Order is described as a universalist group that celebrated with equinox and summer solstice services. By the mid-20th century, Gardner and Nichols had begun working on their own respective groups. They actually worked in tandem, creating complementary, though separate, practices. Their work is what gave us the eight modern pagan festivals that are frequently celebrated today. The group that Nichols founded is still one of the best-known druid groups on the planet, the Order of Bards, Ovates, and Druids. Now that we have the background history out of the way, what in the world is a hedge druid? The moniker of hedge comes from the 19th century term hedge priest, which referred to a priest that didn't follow any specific denomination or tradition. Rather than preach from the pulpit, they would preach from the hedgerows. There is also a secondary meaning that is frequently used with the term hedge witch or witches who can see and practice between different worlds. If one side of the hedgerow is our everyday material world, and the other side of the hedge is the spirit world, the hedge witch can cross back and forth between the two. Sometimes, with a lot of practice, they can do what is called hedge writing, where they simultaneously exist in both worlds. So a hedge druid... A hedge druid is a combination of both of these concepts. They are spiritual individuals who know how to interact with the unseen forces of our world. This is where Vanderhoeven delineates that title a bit more. She divides it into two categories, the mystic and the monastic. She states, quote, The path of the mystic is a solitary path, where personal connection to the divine is the central focus. The mystic druid does this from within society. They find peace, joy, and divinity in the mundane. The monastic druid, quote, retreats from the world to connect with the essence of the divine. This type is considerably more rare in this modern age since we don't exactly have druidic monasteries that create a support structure to facilitate this hermitage. So, in short, mystics are a part of society, while monastics are a part from society. There is one more key aspect of druidry that comes to us from the Welsh tradition and that is the Awen. Awen is a combination of knowledge, the energy of life, and poetic inspiration 
all wrapped up into a single concept. It is represented by three downward slanting rays of light emanating from three points, usually contained within a circle. As an aside, the United States Department of Veteran Affairs approved the use of the Awen symbol for headstones of military veterans in 2017. So now, you can officially find druids buried in Arlington National Cemetery. Now there is a whole chapter of this book dedicated just to the development and cultivation of Awen. It gives us a short history of its origins and how a person can help it grow through meditation, music, and trance. While it is informative for helping grow an individual's practice, it is not the most entertaining show material, so we're going to move on. The next section is on the gods, and this is where things can get confusing for people unfamiliar with Druidry or Paganism. Druidry is a spiritual practice, yes, but it can incorporate many gods, a single god, or no gods at all. It all depends on the individual. As Vanderhoeven states in this book, quote, In Druidry, we work with the ancestors and the spirits of place, and these can often become interwoven with concepts of deity, their stories, and their forms. As a hedge druid, I can make up my own mind about what constitutes deity and what does not based on both research and experience. For me, deity can be several things. It can be a collective energy of place in nature. It can also be a collective energy of human nature, such as love, anger, compassion, or time. Deity can also be a collective energy of ancestral stories, where we find named gods in the old tales, such as Brigid or Lou, Tyrannus or Nematona, end quote. So in Druidry, you can find the divine in absolutely anything, not just in anthropomorphized gods and goddesses, but also in spirits, in location, or even in the heart of a single tiny acorn. And let me tell you, being able to find a divine spark in the simplest of situations is truly a type of magic in itself. Okay, so maybe you're sitting there saying, what if I want to work with Celtic deities? Where do I begin? Okay, so first you have to understand that the term Celtic is a blanket term for a group of shared cultural practices. There is no Celtic pantheon, but there are Irish, Scottish, Welsh, and Gallic pantheons. Granted, there are others, but these are the more common ones that modern druids work with. While she doesn't go into any great detail about the specific deities within these pantheons, Vanderhoeven does provide a brief list of several of the major figures. It's mostly a way to point someone in the right direction if they choose to work with these entities. Once we move on from deities, we have a few other concepts found in the practice of Druidry. The Three Realms, the World Tree, the Four Quarters, the Wheel of the Year, Moon Cycles, Meditation, Prayer, Magic, and Animism. Okay, so that's a lot. Uh, let me just go ahead and summarize each of these for you. 
When most people think of the elements, they think of the classical Greek categories of earth, air, fire, and water. Japanese philosophy adds the void as a fifth element. The Mahabuddha uses the four classical elements, but also incorporates space and consciousness. In China, there is a slightly more complex system of elements that is focused on how they interact with each other. In this system, there is water, wood, fire, earth, and metal. It's kind of like a five-way rock-paper-scissors where one element can overcome another, but is still defeated by a different one, all while interacting with the two remaining elements. In Druidry, we make it simple. There's only three elements. Because Druidry is kind of obsessed with trinities, if you haven't noticed. These elements are land, sea, and sky. Now, these three aren't quite the same as the others. You wouldn't find them used to describe things in Dungeons and Dragons. Fireball sounds kind of cool. Landball? Yeah, not so much. The Druidic elements are more of a framework for philosophical thought. Because of this, there is actually a bit more overlap with Eastern philosophy than with Western. That said, I want to remind you that modern Druidry is a 20th century concept superimposed on a reconstructed belief system, so the similarity to Eastern philosophy shouldn't be too surprising. Moving on, the concept of the world tree is pretty much universal at this point. The tree is the axis of all reality. The roots run into the underworld, the realm of the dead and lower entities. The limbs reach into the sky and represent intangible things like thought and the soul. Things that are ephemeral and difficult to grasp from where we exist, which is huddled around the trunk, which represents the physical, material world. This allegory is an excellent tool for meditation, which is also covered later in this book. But since it's pretty much the same introduction that you'll find everywhere, I'm going to go ahead and skip that section. The next few chapters covers the four quarters, the wheel of the year, and the cycles of the moon. In short, the four quarters are a combination of compass points, seasons, and the cycles of life. This is a totally modern introduction, and Vanderhoeven attributes it to ancient Greece, but I think the modern source is quite likely the North American indigenous plains tribes and their concept of the medicine wheel. Either way, this concept is more commonly found in Wiccan practices or in neo-pagan circles, though some druidic groups utilize it due to its familiarity. The Wheel of the Year, as I mentioned earlier, was a creation of Nichols and Gardner, who combined various pan-Celtic festivals into a single ritual cycle that divides the year into eight segments. Basically, they took the solstices and the equinoxes and then found the midpoints between them, and then they ascribed a festival to those midpoints. The Cycles of the Moon is a pretty interesting chapter. It covers a slew of factoids, history, mythology, timekeeping and correspondences, all with the moon phases. Now this may make me sound ignorant for not knowing this, but I always thought that the moon was unable to rotate due to being tidally locked. No, apparently it does actually rotate on its axis, 
but it rotates at the same rate that it circles the Earth, so it appears to be standing still. Basically, as it orbits, it also rotates, so the same side faces the planet no matter where it is. How cool is that? This is also the chapter where it's explained that timekeeping in the Celtic world was lunar-based, and, to them, the day ends at sunset and a new day begins at night. Which isn't that crazy if you actually stop to think about it. When does the day end? Most of us would say at sundown, but in our modern world, the day technically ends at midnight. Once you really think about it, starting the new day at midnight seems kind of arbitrary, doesn't it? Another super useful aspect of this chapter is that van der Hoeven lists several charts listing the names of specific moon cycles throughout the year, based on various cultures. These names are still in use today and appear to be a combination of both English medieval names and Algonquin names from North America. Names like Wolf Moon and Cold Moon seem pretty universal between all of these groups, though. This also only applies to the Northern Hemisphere. I'm not sure if the Southern Hemisphere has different names for the moon cycles, or if they simply reverse the order. If you happen to know, leave me a note in the comments. The final chapters in this large section are on meditation, prayer, magic, and animism. They are largely an introduction to each concept rather than a step-by-step -step guide, so I will skip describing them. And that basically covers the first third of this book. Beyond this section, Vanderhoven delves into the actual practice of druidry. I call this the how-to section. She also goes into the different paths of specific study and a section on the ethics and responsibility of actually being a druid. It's a pretty intense book when everything is said and done. It's certainly not something that you can sit down and digest in a single reading. I feel like if you were particularly motivated, you could probably get through the first section without much effort, since it's largely history and theory. Once you move on to the section about the actual practice of druidry, you'll want to slow down a bit and take time to, well, practice. This book is dense. Let's face it, there's a lot here to cover, and Joanna Vanderhoeven makes an astounding attempt to cover all of the information to some degree. That's honestly pretty impressive. There's a lot of books on the market that want to spoon-feed you information, or they simply repeat the same introductory material over and over and over again. While a good bit of the material in this book can be found piecemeal through the Pagan Portal series, the Book of Hedge Druidry delivers all of that knowledge to you in one giant chunk. When people ask me about the practice of Druidry, or are interested in possibly starting it themselves, I usually recommend the Awen Alone first. It's a good way to sample the larger concepts before diving into the details. If they are receptive to the ideas in that book, then I recommend they pick up this book. Honestly, after reading this title, 
a person will need specialty books to further their practice. It's that all-encompassing. So yes, I highly recommend The Book of Hedge Druidry by Joanna Vanderhoeven. I'll post a link in the show notes to both of these titles. And that's all I have for tonight. The Esoteric Book Club can be found on Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, and at esotericbookclub.org. Intro and outro music is from the song Fight Don't Fight and is courtesy of Sarah Rudy and her band Hello June. You can find more of their work at bandcamp.com or at wearehellojune.com. Archive members, stick around for a discussion on druidic tools and prayer. For everyone else, have a great holiday season, whatever it is that you may celebrate. So until next time, remember, practice your rap battles because the Marilu is coming soon. Good night. It's time once again to open the Esoteric Archive. There are a lot of topics in this book that have been covered in other reviews that I've done for this show. Topics such as working with the ancestors, creating an altar, and basic meditative practices. While this book covers these topics in depth, there is no need to reiterate what has been said before. At least, not for the purposes of this show. What I do want to focus on are a few things unique to Druidry and a few instructional chapters that I really haven't seen anywhere else. Hi, Techie Joe here. I work with Ace and Knight and some of the best psychics in West Virginia to create amazing live streams and podcasts for the Psychic Coffee Shop Network. Together, we brew up great content discussing news, events, hot topics, and more, all from a psychic perspective. On The Psychic Coffee Shop, we interview amazing authors in the metaphysical realm. Coffee and Tea combines Asen with Tracy, Dottie, Natalie, or Lady Gwendolyn for the good and the bad of being a psychic. Shameless self-promotion with Dottie the Psychic talks to leading and emerging YouTubers and business owners in our community. Mountain Bears brings you the latest in LGBT news and politics. The Psychic That Plans answers the question of, well, how a psychic plans. Plus, we're live on air. We take your comments and your questions, including psychic advice questions. Check out our amazing programming, book an appointment with top psychics, and find out all the wonderful things we have to offer at PCSBnetwork.com today. Hey everyone, Natalie here from The Pendulum's Path. If you need guidance, direction, spiritual connection, or more, then listen up. I have worked as a psychic and a medium for over three years, connecting people from all over the world with their loved ones in spirit, giving them insight and guidance into their current situations, the past healings that need to be worked on, and what it is they need to know today in order to have a better future. It would be my absolute honor if you would visit my website at www.thependulumspath.com I also offer emailed readings for those with busy schedules too. Also, for you goblins who subscribe to the Esoteric Book Club, I have a special coupon code just for you. Enter the code STAYWEIRD 
to get $5 off of any order of $25 or more. Hope to see you there.